0: You know our studio was known for kind of cartoony stop motion and clay animation but we were trying to do something that was semi-realistic kind of a stylized version of realistic and it was a sort of a swamp scene with a big stegosaurus and some of the dinosaur it was just a spec piece really to send yeah. to the say we, you know we'd like to do this project and they were in the middle of working on that and I, it was a friday and jurassic park was came out on a friday and we'd all been talking about it. we'd seen the trailers and None of us had any connections with ILM or any other visual effects. We were a little island up there. And so we were all kind of trying to guess from what we read in the trades about how the work was done. We knew some of it was computer graphics, but we figured that was only could only be used for distant shots of dinosaurs. So anytime they were close it must be the Stan Winston animatronics. But then there were shots in the trailer that we thought, How on earth could they do that with an animatronic at that size? You know, big dinosaur legs T-Rex legs yeah. passing in front of like the Jeep and the headlights of the Jeep things like that so I took I just went off by myself on my lunch lunch break and um, and, so, and saw the film and I'm you know it changed everything yeah. not just in my mind but in the whole industry but I just I came back to work and I went over to the guys working on the, the spec to ask for the dinosaur film and I said stop what you're doing <laughs> put your tools down Go go see the movie, whatever you thought was possible, you'd have no idea. you literally have no idea. Just go and see it.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. I'm John Gill, and this is On the Fly, this episode with Hal Hickel. And that story you just heard is typical of Hal's philosophy of being in the movie business, which is really refreshing, positive, pragmatic, and down-to-earth. Hal is an animation supervisor at Industrial Light and Magic, the visual effects company founded in 1975 by George Lucas to accommodate a doomed little space opera film called Star Wars. You've probably not heard of it. Anyway, this episode is a real indulgence for me because I grew up fascinated with the same influences as Hal. Ray Harryhausen, Universal's monster movies, and of course, Star Wars, which I saw as a six-year-old and it's stayed with me ever since. However, it managed to stay with Hal in a much more profound way, and we'll get straight into that at the start of the podcast. Hal also spent time at Pixar as an animator on the original Toy Story, and has since been animation supervisor on the kinds of rare films that I will watch over and over. Pirates of the Caribbean, Iron Man, Rango, Rogue One, Star Wars Story... And most recently on Disney Plus is The Mandalorian. And we'll get into that next week because this is an epic two-parter. So in this episode, Hal also shares a ton of invaluable advice for anyone wanting to get into the visual effects industry. From what should be on your showreel to sticking to your values and how you should approach the job. So please subscribe and make sure you keep up to date and never miss an episode. Better still, leave a review. And I hope this podcast is worth your time. If it is, remember and share with people because the best recommendation is a personal one. So thanks again for listening. This is On The Fly with John Gill and Hal Hickel. Dial up the pod
0: so after star wars came out in 77 and i was uh, 13 14 years old then they announced some point after it came out that there was going to be a sequel <clears throat> and i was living on a little ranch in colorado middle of nowhere but i was already interested in animation and special effects i'd been making little super 8 films even before star wars came out but now i was really fully invested in the idea of working in film and uh, so I wrote a letter to Lucasfilm with my, you know, what I thought the sequel should be about and uh, and expressed my, you know, intense desire to be a part of it in some way. And I sent it off. I don't recall to what address or, or how I might've gotten, you know, it was pre-internet. So I got a letter back and it was very polite. Uh, the sort of letter you'd expect, you know, telling me to begin with that they, you know, haven't read my sequel idea they have people working on it you know it's the standard thing about how uh studios don't take outside uh ideas because you know obviously they they didn't say it in the letter because i'm it was just a kid but basically you know they don't want to get sued later on that yeah. saying they, they stole my idea um so that was kind of a letdown but it was a very kind letter and you know I, I, because i expressed so much interest in, in working on the film in any way at all you know and i'm 13 years old they uh the letter said something about, you know, getting a start in Hollywood takes a combination of talent and luck uh, and usually an agent in Hollywood or something like that. And uh, and so at the time it was sort of like, it was a bit of a letdown, but as time passed um, I realized that it was actually kind of cool. For one thing, it was on this really cool Ralph Macquarie letterhead that Lucasfilm was using at the time. And, um, and the other thing about it was that it was, Actually typed up by the producer's assistant, Bunny also Gary Kurtz's assistant. And you know, as a you know kid, it, it, I didn't really appreciate that. But a, a little bit later, as I got some perspective, I was like, "Well, how on earth did she have time to answer? Because they must have been getting boatloads of you know yeah. letters like this." So, um, uh, so that you know, I kept, always kept the letter and it, it, you know, it was sort of a touchstone for me and something I, you know, I was like, well, I still, you know, my plan is still to work there one day. So then flash forward, uh, you know, to when I actually got on at ILM and then I was working on Phantom and We finished Phantom and We had a big crew breakfast and George was there. And, you know, ordinarily while working on the film, it's all business. You know, we, we all, we're just, we're a crew. We're all filmmakers working together. But at the breakfast is since it was a celebration a few folks started to bring up you know maybe they had a phantom menace poster because we were close to the release and that stuff was available then or a crew photo or something and they started bringing them up to george to have him sign it and he was very gracious and a little line formed and rob coleman who was the animation director on all three of the prequels said to me oh you got to go get that letter because i i had it framed at my desk you know just because of yeah yeah So he had to get that letter and show it to George. I was like, nah, I guess, no, no, come on, go, go get it, go get it. So I went to my office, and, you know, took that frame and brought it to George. And, and he read it and he kind of chuckled and he underlined the words talent and luck and wrote, you have it and, and signed it. And so, it was, you know, kind of finished that whole story for me in a nice way. And a few years ago, like maybe six or seven years ago, by pure chance, I found Bunny Alsop on linkedin of all places and shared the story with her and she loved it and asked for a copy of the letter but i asked her i said why on earth were you personally answering fan mail you know there must have been a flood of it and she said that in the months leading up to them shipping off to the uk to shoot empire strikes back that was just something she liked to do she would just answer as much of the fan mail as she could, could do, you know, and then I guess the rest of it would get shunted off to whoever else might take care of things like that. But she just enjoyed doing that. So yeah. that answered that question for me.
1: <laughs> it just reminded me, I used to work on a comic and it was for sort of six, seven year olds. And we used to get letters. And one of the jobs I had was to respond to some of these letters, but in character, <laughs> and I would do. I would do a little doodle of the the character. Um, the number of kids who've come back to me now is like twenty somethings and like you don't remember me, but you drew a picture of the shooting. Uh, you never know. You never know what the impact of that is, do you? So
0: yeah, that's so great. That's awesome. But, <laughs> that's really so good.
1: what? So what was it that got you interested in animation in the first place?
0: Movies. Uh, my brother and I. two years older than me and and we both really loved the um the old universal horror films which we'd see on tv frankenstein the wolfman etc the mummy and then uh, i saw king kong somewhere along in there in my early childhood so i was maybe six or seven and became instantly fascinated with stop motion uh and so i just started finding books on the subject either on the making of that film or just on the topic of stop motion and there wasn't a lot then this early 70s and no internet of course so i'm just scraping together information wherever i can get it and so by the time star wars comes out in 77 i'm you know 13 years old and i'm making stop motion films with a super 8 camera that a a teacher had actually given me um and shooting super 8 stuff with that and doing little experiments and animation and things and, but really focused on stop motion. I, you know, of course by then discovered Ray Harryhausen's films and was, watched those. And, and every Sunday, the Sunday paper, there was a thing in there uh, that was sort of, the, it was the TV guide for the week, right? What was gonna be on TV. And there was always a couple of pages that were just the movies that were gonna be on that week. And that was always, as soon as the Sunday paper came in, I grab it, I grab the TV section, I'd find those pages and I'd just scour them for science fiction, horror, you know, fantasy movies. And if I was really lucky, you know, one of Ray's films would be on Jason and the Argonauts or uh, Seven Boy to Simbad or something. And if not that, then maybe a Godzilla movie or Mighty Joe Young or something like that, or one of the old horror, uh, universal horror films. So, um, so Star Wars came out and that kind of blew the lid off. Like it made me interested in all aspects of visual effects. I wanted to know how they shot the miniature ships, how they, um, did Luke's lightsaber, his land speeder, you know, everything. I just, I really want to know all of it. And, um, and there was an excellent, there was a really good article that was really probably the first good piece of visual effects journalism, if you will, because this was before Cinefax, um, that I got my hands on. It was a magazine called Cinefantastique and they did a big double issue on the visual effects of both Star Wars and Close Encounters because those both came out in the same summer. Usually, my I, in talks like this, I think about Star Wars first and foremost. But it, Close Encounters coming out that same summer also had a massive impact on me. Because and then and arguably the visual effects in it are even more incredible than what's in Star Wars in many ways, particularly in terms of technical polish. They're just astounding, and both of those films just had me um, obsessed. So, anyways, so that that was the thing that kind of sealed the deal, and I really, from that point on, was was um, you know, looking to have a career in in film and in visual effects. And there was a, one of the great things about the Fantastic article was that they, they did interviews with a lot of different members of the crew, not just the sort of top names. And one of the people they interviewed was this guy, Adam Beckett, and he was the head of, um, basically what they were calling roto effects, animated effects. So his department would do things like the lightsabers, uh, laser blasts, electrical sparks, things like that. Like, uh, uh, something that Adam him, animated himself was when the Jawas zap R2D2 and all those little blue electrical yeah. arcs crawl over him. Yeah. And he, and that really caught my imagination, especially. And he mentioned in his part of the interview that um, he had gone to CalArts, the California Institute of the Arts. So I I set my sights on that school, which, you know, nowadays, you your you students are generally advised to have more than one plan after after high school. <laughs> Uh, you know, applied a few schools, but I, that was it. I put together a portfolio and I sent it to CalArts and crossed my fingers. And, uh, very, you know, that was a massive stroke of luck, actually, that they got in. It was a pretty competitive school, still is. And um, my, <laughs> my uh, per- portfolio was not polished. I didn't have anybody to explain to me how to put one together. It was sort of a box that was just full of drawings and flip books and some super eight films and All right. uh, you know just a bunch of stuff but Jules Engel who was heading the film graphics department which was at Cal Arts, there were two animation programs there was what was called the Disney school which was devoted to pretty classic you know character animation and then there was film graphics which was experimental animation which is where I wanted to go and Jules Engel who headed that up I think he just I don't know he, there's something about it must have tickled him because he uh he approved my, (laughs) my, my uh, admission. So anyway, so that was a huge break for me. So that's kind of how it started. Um, and, uh, I didn't stay all the way through at CalArts, uh, although that was a very difficult decision. I love the school. And I think generally speaking, uh, if people have access to a good art program and can afford it and all that, I encourage them to do it because I, um, for one thing you're surrounded by people who are kind of like-minded you sort of find your tribe there which i think is really important for artists and creative people um but you know if it's a good program obviously you, you know there's a lot to learn and but it's not the only way to get there you know there are a lot of good online schools now animation mentors fantastic um and there's just a lot of self-learning that wasn't available back then that you can do now you know there's all kinds of great youtube tutorials things like that and And access to the tools has never been better than it is now. You know, Blender, which is completely free, is a very powerful 3D software if if that's your interest through, you know, doing animation, 3D CG animation. Um, I think Maya, which is kind of the industry standard, still has a a sort of personal learning edition that's uh, free, as far as I know. I haven't looked in a while, but they had that. And as I always tell people, you know, if those things aren't available to you, like if you don't have a computer that can, run those things well and all that, then you know, start writing, start drawing, make flip books, do something to move ahead. It, when I was at CalArts, this was the early 80s and in the America, uh, not to get political, but Reagan was not um, exactly doing great things in terms of education grants and things like that. It wasn't a good administration at the time for that sort of thing. And so most of my first year at CalArts was funded with loans and I got kind of scared of that, of this massive debt that was piling up because I didn't expect to get out of animation school and run off to have this high paying, high flying career, Um, particularly if you look at the animation landscape in 1982, 1983, you know, Disney was almost on its deathbed. Uh, It really wasn't a going concern. And American animation was pretty limited TV stuff Um, and visual effects companies were there were just a few dotting the landscape, you know, uh, maybe one in New York and a handful of Southern California. So it wasn't this big industry that it is now. So, um, so again, I got nervous and I, and I left and for probably a good decade after leaving Cal Arts, as I was sort of working my way up through a couple of different little companies, I regretted it. And I thought often about maybe going back, but then, um, I had a few other lucky breaks, like, like my admission to Cal Arts in the first place that, um, I, that I'm grateful for that, sort of moved me forward, but uh, but I, my, I cherish, always have cherished my, my year at CalArts. It was a wonderful time for me on every level, not just educationally, but socially, just, I mean, the whole, you know, that whole thing of getting away from home for the first time, and, and especially there, I mean, it was such a crazy, unique, still is, that it's a great school, and it was just a crazy, unique place, and uh, I had a great, great time there, sort of trying to figure out who I was and what did I want to do with myself and how i wanted to express myself
1: it's i don't know it is a luxury that you take for granted when you're at school which makes you sound makes me sound very old but but yeah it is it's uh but but like you say it's more than one way
0: yeah to, absolutely to it. one of the other things i liked about CalArt's arts um being a multidisciplinary school if you uh like if you were in a film school and you're making a live action film there's a drama school there you can Get your actors there. There's a music school you can go chat up. Find somebody who's like-minded who could, you know, maybe write some music for you or, or perform it. Um, and that was exciting too. To have like, you know, a fine arts school, uh, art, uh, music, drama, dance, you know, around just in being in the middle of that. That was yeah. that was cool too. So I left. I went back up to Portland, where I was from, and um, I got work at a small animation shop called Anifex, it's long gone, that did the kind of work I was actually interested in at the time, which was not character work, it was um, what still is called motion graphics, but now is done obviously digitally, but then it was done on um, what you guys would call a rostrum camera, we called it an animation stand. Um, and this studio had actually quite a nice one, it was a newish Oxbury with a, pr- a kind of early computer motion control system on it. And so I spent a few years there learning to do that kind of motion graphic stuff, sort of streak photography, a bit like the Stargate sequence in 2001, but a lot less sophisticated, mm-hmm. sort of local advertising work. But that were kind of, the opening titles in the original Superman, you know, those kind of streaky titles with glittery yeah. edges and that kind of stuff, which I thought was really fascinating and I was into. And it connected with that Adam Beckett guy and the, the, the electrical animation he'd done. Um. And then, um, as I was really getting quite tired of working there, I didn't like the guy that owned the place, and it was small, and again, we were kind of doing boring local advertising stuff. Uh, I had a friend who was working at Will Vinton Studios, which was a clay animation studio in Portland, um, that had been around since the 70s, um, but was having a big moment, because they did these commercials for the California Raisins, which were a on the cultural radar in the mid 80s late 80s and um and so their studio was expanding and they were hiring and they were right there in portland um and they're actually they're sort of the genesis of why portland is still one of the international hubs of stop motion at the moment you know leica is there and Leica grew out of Wilburton studios who's morphed into and became leica and then there's shadow machine and a bunch of other companies there now that are making stop motion features, but then it was a smaller community, but it was still really vital. Um, there were a bunch of filmmakers there, and animation studio, small studios. so Vinton's was the biggest. Anyway, so I had a friend there who said, oh, you gotta, you know, you come over here, you used to do stop motion when you were a kid, you'll love it, and so I got hired on there, and, uh, and I spent six and a half years there doing stop motion animation, um, but I got, one of the things I really liked about Vinton's was I got to do a few different things, because I'd had a interest in and some experience in other aspects of visual effects, particularly sort of animated effects and things, I got to kind of make that part of the studio of the studio's work my own in a way. I I persuaded them to buy an oxbury, a down shooter, because at that point all the motion graphics work was going computer graphics and people were selling their animation stands for cheap. And so we bought one put it in a corner, and that was my little kingdom. I would do anytime we needed electrical effects or anything that was not, not 3D, not sculpted stop motion, I'd do that. And then I also, as our motion control equipment, which is to say the sort of machines that the camera's attached to for shooting stop motion that are motorized and controlled by a computer. When I started there, that was super basic. Um, we didn't, it wasn't computer controlled. It was sort of controlled by a box and could only do a few simple motions. But as the time went on, they got more and more sophisticated motion control equipment. And I kind of made that my little kingdom as well, because it tied in with my interest with visual effects. So I was a character animator, but I did a lot of other different visual effects related things. And this was all, in my mind, heading towards a career at ILM and Industrial Light Magic eventually. Yeah, Um, that's really what I wanted to do. The work we were doing at Mittens was all television work, uh, either commercials or we were doing also doing some half hour specials for ABC that were centered around the raisins or other char- characters and it was a great place to be. It was small, it was, you know, about 200 people at its biggest and um, and I learned a lot and, you know, it got me back to my first love of doing stop motion and um, so it was great. It was a really good place to be. But again, I was sort of aiming towards this, this career and hopefully in visual effects, movie visual effects and then Jurassic Park came out and I'll never forget it because we were working on a there was a script going around at that time for a film called Dinosaur that Phil Tippett, you know, the, one of the, our sort of masters of stop motion visual effects, had planned to do, and it was a feature length film with realistic dinosaurs. He was going to do it all in stop motion. And then one thing and another, he ended up not doing it, maybe because he was doing Jurassic Park, I don't know. And this, so Disney, who had that script, started sending it out to different stop motion and other effects studios and we had gotten it and we're doing a test and it was a you know our studio was known for kind of cartoony stop motion and clay animation but we were trying to do something that was semi-realistic kind of a stylized version of realistic and it was a sort of a swamp scene with a big stegosaurus and some other the dinosaur it was just a spec piece really to send yeah. to them to say we, you know we'd like to do this project and they were in the middle of working on that and I, it was a friday and jurassic park was came out on a Friday and we'd all been talking about it. We'd seen the trailers and none of us had any connections with ILM or any other visual effects. We were a little island up there. And so we were all kind of trying to guess from what we'd read in the trades about how the work was done. We knew some of it was computer graphics, but we figured that was only could only be used for distant shots of dinosaurs. So anytime they were close, it must be the Stan Winston animatronics. But then there were shots in the trailer that we thought, how on earth could they do that with an animatronic at that size? You know, big dinosaur legs, T-Rex legs yeah. passing in front of like the Jeep and the headlights of the Jeep, things like that. So I took, I just went off by myself on my lunch, lunch break and, um, and, so, and saw the film and I'm, you know, it changed everything. Yeah. Not just in my mind, but in the whole industry, but I just, I came back to work and I went over to the guys working on the, the spec to ask for the dinosaur film. And I said, stop what you're doing, <laughs> put your tools down. <laughs> go, go see the movie, whatever you thought was possible. Yeah, you have no idea. You literally have no idea. just go and see it. <laughs> but it was kind of also it was exhilarating. But it was also a little devastating for me because I thought, well, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't you know, I figured it was all folks in lab coats with computer science degrees. and you know many of them did have computer science degrees or, or related degrees. But what I didn't know um, is that studios like ILM and Pixar, Who you know forging ahead in this world of computer animation, you know they didn't have a world full of great animation schools and programs to draw from for their animators, and pickings were slim. And so they were they were drawing from traditional animation, you know, stop motion and cell animation, animation, uh, you know, people. And but I didn't know that, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can. Use my skills, my other skills in visual effects, you know, motion control, camera operation, that kind of thing, to still get me at ILM. I don't know. Um, and so I, I kind of continued on at Vinton's trying to figure out what my next move was for the next couple of years, reading everything I could get my hands on, watching all the behind the scenes stuff on films like Jurassic Park. And then I, another lucky break. Um, Pixar was well behind on um, Toy Story. And they had soaked up all the animators they could get in the Bay area from, uh, the different stop motion houses and, and other places. And, um, they really needed more bodies. And, um, Mike Belzer, who had was a stop motion animator in the Bay area and was working at Pixar, kind of put out feelers to people he knew in the, in the stop motion world, And one of them was, uh, one of our lead animators at Vinton's Teresa drilling. And she wasn't interested in computer animation, but she knew that I was, trying desperately to you know find a way into that world and so she said to me hey mike says um you know you don't even have to know how to turn on a computer just send a reel down if you know how to animate characters that's what they care about so i sent a reel down that was you know my character animation work at vinton's and got hired and that was a massive massive stroke of luck for me getting into cal was one getting hired at vinton's was two this was the third you know thing i was really grateful for and this was arguably i think the biggest sort of jump leap for me and, and lucky break because I didn't go out looking for it I I would never have known how to contact Pixar or you know or whatever I didn't realize they were hiring or anything it wasn't again it wasn't like today where there's companies all over the world that have jobs webs you know boards and things where you can kind of figure out and a network of people talking there's no LinkedIn there was no
1: yeah
0: um so I got hired and uh and that that was huge for me
1: I was the same, saw Jurassic Park and just thought it's it's like a magic trick, isn't it? That I suppose the best films are that you you they take your eye off the ball by, you know, it's animatronic, then it's computer graphics, it's far away, then it's close. And and right. the combination is just stunning. But when when I saw the tweet and you said 25 years, where's the time gone? Because I can remember that it wasn't a good time to be in sort of illustration. And I'd taken a sidestep into nursing of all things. And I was I was handing out dinners, just walked into this room. There's Toy Story thinking, why have I not seen this? Assuming it was already out. And it was the clip. The toys are all on the windowsill. They're watching the kids come in with the the, the gifts for Andy's party. It was just like, wow, so things are going to be different with anime and it's funny how like things like jurassic park and and toy story had that impact and yet, yeah now they're still you know they're still the, the the movies that people go back to and say well that's where everything changed so how aware when you were making that how aware was the sort of the the crew of that
0: um i don't know generally like for instance there were you know a bunch of folks there who'd been on it because the the whole production of Toy Story was somewhere around four years. And I was only there for the last six months. But in that last six months, we animated about half the movie. Because it had gotten because they had a whole thing where they got shut down for a little bit to kind of rework the story. And there was a whole journey. And and that's why, again, why they were just scouring the landscape for animators, because they were at a point where they were they needed to execute the story they had. They kind of ironed out the wrinkles, but there was a lot left to do and they were behind. Um, but 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 I think those people that have been there for years at because Pixar you know it got it started as the Lucasfilm computer graphics division and then George kind of got the tools he wanted out of it but he didn't he didn't have interest in, at that point in time in starting an animation studio which is what some of the people working there you know Lassiter and, and and Bill Reeves and Ed Catmull wanted to do with the technology so he sold that group to Steve Jobs in '85 so this is you know, 95 when I joined. So they've been around for 10 years. They've been developing Render Man software, but also building their, honing their chops as, as an animation group, doing commercials and different things and short films like Lexo Jr., et cetera.
1: And now they've been working on
0: this film for three and a half years. So for them, I don't know if they were so immersed in it. And, and by that point, maybe so unsurprised by the technology they'd all been hammering away on to get working. I don't know whether they could see it as groundbreaking anymore or not or just what they're doing. Whereas I was coming into it from the outside as a with no experience in computer animation, coming in as a stop-motion animator. And the first scene I got to see, in fact, when they interviewed me, they put in, they showed the the toy soldier sequence. That was, they had, that was all finished and it looked good. And, and so that was how they, they were like, well, here's what, here's, give you a little taste of the project and you know, I was blown away and I thought, this is fantastic. I can't wait. This is amazing. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I had it in my head that like, this is going to change the whole industry. In five years, there won't be any more 2D animation, which, by the way, is not a, is not a good thing. Um, I wish they, there was a bit more balance in what we were doing now. And they tried, you know, the Princess and the Frog came on a few years later and um, which is great. It's terrific work in that. It's a beautiful film. I just think they forgot how to market those films or something i don't know i mean it's possible that audience tastes change at, at some point and that that really did play a role in it but i think it's unfortunate because like, there's a world in which i mean we certainly have a very vibrant landscape of stop motion still um uh, you know aardman's and like different companies so i don't know why we can't have more drawn uh some anyways but, uh, so i don't think i necessarily had that in my head but I definitely felt like it was, you know, a game changer and, and something really incredibly new. But uh, the other part of that, though, you know, certainly there was the technology and the CG animation. The other part of it was the tone of the film, because if you remember at that time, particularly films coming from Disney, um, you know, they were gorgeous. You know, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, amazing films. But you know, they were all musicals, very much in a Broadway style with that very classic kind of Disney um, uh, sort of pantomime of animation, golden poses, you know, and not much, um, and the humor was all kind of aimed right down the middle, you know, and Pixar found a way to be a little cheeky without spoiling the tone. You know, you never kind of went, oh, who's this movie written for? You know, that's yeah, that's a little, you know, every joke landed great, it was aimed at adults, but without being problematic and and then the kids had lots stop it. But, but in it the tone was just a little sideways from what everyone was used to at the time. And it wasn't a musical. It had a musical, it had a few songs in it with, you know, cut sequences that went under them, but they weren't it wasn't a musical. So that also just made it seem like, wow, this is oh wow, this is a, this is new, this is different, you know. That combination of those things did make me think, well, this, you know, it's kind of cool. This isn't like anything else that's out there. So that's, but you know, at the same time, you have to remember, particularly right there in the Bay Area, um, Nightmare Before Christmas had come out uh, back around, I think just the year after Jurassic Park and Changing the Giant Peach was in production while we were working on Toy Story um, in a different part of the Bay Area. And we would go over to their place on Fridays and have beers and they'd come over to, to Pixar and have beers on Fridays. and so it was kind of that was a cool thing too. Like it felt like maybe the Bay Area itself was uh, some kind of new hotspot for different anim. Um, sadly, uh, Henry Shelick's studio closed not long after James came out. They never got to make it another film. Oh no, that's not true. They made Monkey Bone, and then it closed. Um, but Henry's making a new feature now, which makes me very happy. He's doing that yeah, yeah. Um <clears throat> But anyway, so all those things made it feel like something's happening here. But I, but again, it wasn't like I walked in and went, ah, this is going to be a hit. This is going to be huge. It's going to transform the whole, you know. But again, though, this was three years after Jurassic. So there was already some sense that computer graphics was certainly changing, uh, certainly the visual effects industry and now seemingly the feature animation industry, maybe. So.
1: I did a degree about 25 years ago and um, we had to do an essay on art history. So most people were doing sort of Gaudi's cathedral in Barcelona or, you know, some Victorian chair or something. And I say, I want to do visual effects. And they're like, that's not history. I'm like, well, actually, this was I was talking to somebody who had very little knowledge or interest in Star Wars. So explaining that it had all started in 1977 was my hook um but they're like okay star wars that's you know whatever um and i was like well listen there's there's a new star wars coming out next year and then you'll get it you know because everything's going to be different again but the thing that i found fascinating was that there was despite all the this amazing stuff that was going on there still wasn't the funding and it was it was people like steven spielberg coming along trusting that you could make Stuff that would stand up to Stan Winston's models yeah. was the thing that that pushed it on, and the the waterworm thing in the abyss was just like a little chipping away at the, yeah. the sculpture that would be sort of you know visual effects, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I you know again, I I would devour every ep, uh, uh, issue of Cineffects all through the eighties, watch every film that that ILM would worked on, or any of the other um visual effects studios that were big at the time and i would just read everything about it and uh computer graphics stuff was fascinating to me i didn't really get it but i kind of you know in broad strokes i understood conceptually what they were doing but i didn't really understand the specifics of it before that even before ilm getting involved with it you had tron uh last starfighter but along in there in 82 rafa khan the Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Group does things. the Genesis Effect yeah. uh, demo thing. The Lauren Carpenter and others at, at uh, what was not yet Pixar, it was still Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Group, did that. And That was amazing. And then a few years later, they do this stained glass night sequence for Young Sherlock Holmes, which was really sort of the first photo creature in a live action film. Then the the tentacle in a, in Abyss, uh, the te- the stuff in Terminator Two. And then Jurassic Park. But, you know, the the reason, one of the reasons I think Jurassic Park was such a big sea change was it was a creature. It was a flesh and blood creature. Because up to then it was like, okay, water tentacle, chrome guy, you know, stained glass night, kind of amazing. But, you know, but this was, and for somebody like me from Stop Motion, who'd grown up on Ray Harryhausen and King Kong and et cetera, who wanted to do that as a living, to do creatures in that way, in the Ray Harryhausen way, that was just a massive moment. It was like, oh, I didn't think computer graphics could be used to make something look like it was alive. And yeah, here we are.
1: So I suppose the the up until Jurassic Park, there was a sort of a pragmatism that people were, were, were sort of working within the limitation. So even Toy Story famously was like, we've got a couple of stories we could do, but we know we can do things that yeah. look plasticky really well. We know we can do shiny metal stuff, although, you know, that I I think what's interesting with the Mandalorian now is how that's gone another step because all of the reflective surfaces and seem to be, you know, a big sort of issue and 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 sort of and it's so much better the way that you can you can do it now. But I suppose with, with Jurassic Park, it was like we're gonna make it look like something rather than just stick with what we know we can already do.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of both. Because one of the things that is, I think, a hallmark of, you know, you mentioned before the, the effects in Jurassic Park still largely holding up, which I think they do. And I think one of the keys to that, if you look back through the history of visual, because there's obviously now, and has been for a while, a uh, you know, a lot of people you find saying, oh, practical effects are better. They, they sort of ruined everything with all this CPI. the thing is, if you, if you grew up in the pre-digital era on films then, you'd know that and i I haven't done any research to prove this empirically but my my suspicion is from having grown up on these films that there was the same proportion of really good believable effects or or even if they weren't believable they were so cool that you loved them To terrible unbelievable shoddy looking effects it was the same proportion and i don't know what that proportion is maybe 10 percent grade and you know, ninety percent, or twenty yeah. percent, great, eighty percent, whatever it is. The difference is in the pre digital digital era. You know, a big visual effects film might have hundred shots in it, or two or three hundred, maybe in the post Star Wars era for a really big visual effects, a, a Close Encounters or a Star Wars or something. Um, uh, Jurassic Park had something around forty six cg dinosaur shots nowadays we a big temple film will have upwards of 2500 digital visual effects shots that's not even counting the practical effects work that happens on set Hmm. and so what i think the difference now is that we went from a trickle to oh and also you didn't have that many genre pictures back in the day in the 70s and early 80s um you know in a big summer you might have two you know you might have aliens and one other Maybe a big action movie, but not a too big um, science fiction film. I mean, obviously, '77 was an exception with Close Encounters of Star Wars. I then you might have lower budget stuff that really don't have much in the way of visual effects, a few cheap shots. Um, now it's a limit so from a trickle to a fire hose. We've got the summer is crowded with massive movies with thousands of visual effects shots, but I think the proportion, um, at least for a while, post. Post Jurassic Park, there were growing pains because the proportion remained the same. You still had 10 to 20% or whatever that is of stuff that was just like astounding. And then a whole lot of other stuff that was really mediocre or bad. And, you know, because of that, CGI started to get kind of a black eye. But um, now I think we've evened out a bit. Like the the work has become so great. You know, there's still stuff where you kind of go, that didn't work out so well. But there's stuff that's just astounding from beginning to end. Um, so it would awesome. be awesome to be a movie builder. It's awesome to be a movie now. now. Um, <laughs> but my point is that um, the hallmark of films that sort of stood the test of time and we're in that 10 to 20%, no matter what area, film area you're talking about, they're filmmakers who probably were curious about the processes, the visual effects processes. And they didn't just hand it off to the visual effects folks and say, make it, make it cool. Show uh, it to me when it's done. They were really interested in the techniques enough that they understood how to kind of cut with the grain and do design shots and moments in a way that suited the technology of the time. So, really good examples of this are 2001. Cooper, not only Cooper was so in, interested and invested in the visual effects processes that he's credited as this visual effects designer, and he himself took the Oscar home for. The visual effects which i think should have gone to doug trumbull but uh, you know <laughs> yeah I, you know um <laughs> uh, and but because he was so i think curious about it invested in i think that played a role and so there's a, an amazing amount of taste in the design of the shots i was just rewatching from a few years later um of a hindenburg robert weiss is the hindenburg the visual effects in that are amazing sure by today's standards here and there some bits are a little clunky or whatever but the shots are gorgeous. They're beautiful. They hold up so well. And again, it's because I think Robert Weiss had already made all kinds of different movies, musicals, *Day the Earth Stood Still*, everything. And I think he understood what what could be work, done well and what was should be avoided. And the stuff just looks great. So all through, you know, the, you, and you again that on that thing of everybody has rose-colored glasses about how great things were in the pre-digital era, <laughs> the year after. 2001 came out the the film that won the visual effects Oscar Then, very next year was a film called Marooned which was another space film and was meant to be a sort of realistic sort of Apollo 13 a fictional version of Apollo 13 astronauts stranded in this capsule orbiting the earth and efforts to rescue them and the work in that is so unbelievable so stagey so fake looking like just classic clunky early effects, and it came out a year after 2001.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So all that to say, when you get to Jurassic Park, on the one hand, yes, they took enormous chances. Um, the the uh, Spaz Williams and Mark DePay and Dennis Muren, who sort of did this secret little side project to, to animate a T-Rex and then show it to Steven, um, that was a big chance. And even in its, that test form, as amazing as it was, was miles away from what they needed it to be to convince audiences and they all took a huge leap but at the same time they didn't go crazy and try to just do every you know they still relied heavily on stan winston's amazing practical creatures and just slotted in the cg where they thought they could do it with carefully designed shots and so it's you know that's a combination of a bold effort to do something really new and take risks but also Again, having taste and understanding of how to execute the work so that they don't overreach. Of course, then, the <laughs> then the rest of the '90s were full of overreach, which is what I again I think kind yeah, of yeah. a little bit of a black eye. People were trying to do all kinds of things that it really just wasn't ready for yet or suited to doing. And uh, but you know, it is what it is.
1: And I suppose you go, you look back at these the the, the, the sort of the films that people still look back at, and because they stand up there's like you say there's because i always feel like the ilm stuff stood out in the early days particularly because like you say it, it was it, it was just really good taste somebody i don't know it, it's really hard to put your finger on but but apart from that then there's this like sort of single vision behind it whether it's Steven Spielberg or Stanley Kubrick or um you know, even Harryhausen sort of, sort of being, going from the animator to pretty much the creative force behind. It. So, you know, some of the films he didn't even direct, right. he was still the creative vision behind them uh, to the point that then he sort of co-director and then pretty much doing, I don't know, craft services as well. <laughs> it, would, it would seem sometimes, but yeah. um, it's that, it's that single vision, isn't it? That, must sort of play a big part I mean the, the thing that always fascinated me about Pixar was the brain trust is it yeah where yeah. they you know and 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 the all the, the chipping away is done on the story before they've even recorded it or yeah. you know shot a single frame so everybody's got the temple the blueprint then for the for the project yeah
0: and that's not usually the way we're able to work in live action big big summer visual effects films, I feel like often get they start shooting while they're still writing, you know, a, a sort of marketing stake gets put in the ground for this is when the movie needs to come out. So we we need to be in pre-production now. But wait, we haven't finished storyboard. We still we have to start shooting. And that's, you know, that's I think that's probably been a, the way big movies get made since the beginning of time. I suspect it just sort of feels that way. Yeah. So we don't get to have our ducks in a row quite as much as as a Pixar does, but <clears throat> the best projects I've been on are the ones where, um, again, where the director's really curious and wants to be involved, not to a maddening degree, but, you know, is wants to be involved in all the steps, you know, and all the things. Gore Verbinski's that way. He's very, he's very you know, he, he likes to know his crew. He likes to know who's doing what and vibe with them and get into, you know, it's never just like, well, let's do a turnover to the visual effects vendor, and I guess I'll see some stuff in a you know in a month. He 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 wants to be almost embedded with everybody, yeah. and saying, you know Guillermo del Toro is the same way. He really loves animation and speaks the animator's language and all uh, that. So those those are the best projects, and that's what helps us bridge the, the stuff where the business of filmmaking sometimes makes it hard to do everything in the right order and 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 do things quite in the way you'd like to do them. Um, and, and it's, you know, passionate, engaged directors who are, um, I think the best ones are, uh, have a strong vision. You know, there's a firm hand on the rudder, so to say, yeah. but they are at the same time collaborative. They expect you to contribute ideas, not just execute some blueprint you've been handed and said, you know, here are the boards, follow those. Yeah. Um, they, they want you to bring new stuff to it, surprise them and that kind of thing. Um and that you know, I think those in, and that's very much John Fabro. John is super collaborative, and intensely interested in process, whatever it is, whether it's visual effects or any other part of. It. He's always tinkering and trying to improve how he makes things so that he can get the most out of everybody and about out of the process and get the most on screen. He's not wasting, it's not, it's not even about wasting money. It's about wasting resources. Period. Creative resources people's time uh money certainly how it affects as it affects everything else so he's that's i think why you see him making you know films like jungle book with you know completely new sort of virtual production techniques and lion king and and mandalorian because he's super curious he's a really curious guy and he just is always looking for new and better ways to solve problems and that's fun
1: I was before I I so I would love to I'm going to park the Pirates of the Caribbean and Rango as much as I would love to talk about them because yeah. you know my kid when when my kids were uh, my daughter was born I think my wife might have been pregnant when we saw um Pirates of the Caribbean which I just think it gets a lot of stick for some reason I I just think the first one is an is an absolute classic in the in the sort of in the way that I used to love um like when I was at school uh the summer holidays would be filled with the old sort of 50s serials and they yes. would just put an episode on every morning so King yeah. of the Rocket Men uh Flash Gordon and it just felt like as much as Indiana Jones is kind of that as well but the I don't know I just I just thought it was it, it was a Again, it was a sort of a i suppose the like how you said the toy story just kind of was just a few degrees off the typical Disney movie Pirates of the Caribbean felt like that as well yeah. and that was a
0: classic lightning in a bottle I mean the big chunk of it obviously gore was Gore and his sensibilities uh script was was terrific, but you know then you got Johnny in the mix creating this really uh a Different kind of pirate character that scared the heck out of all the executives at Disney. You know, who just didn't, and and probably Bruckheimer as well. It's like not knowing, like, is this going to work? Like, what? Um, But fortunately, they ultimately stayed the course and let him do his thing. And it was amazing. I'll tell you though, the thing, and this hopefully this is useful to um, young folks uh, starting out who may face challenges, setbacks, uh, doors closing at some point or other. I. Uh, so my first uh, gig as uh, I started at ILM. So after Toy Story finished, and, and it was going to be a year and a half or so before Bug Life was starting, it was announced that I, uh, Lucasfilm was going to be doing more Star Wars films. And not only that, but Spielberg was going to do a follow-up to Jurassic Park and ILM would be working on it. So I really had to, it was difficult leaving Pixar because I loved it there and I'd had a great time there, but I still really wanted to do the, the sort of Ray Harryhausen thing yeah. more than maybe the feature animation thing so i sent a reel over to ilm got hired I'm very excited i'm finally there i'm an ILM, so i worked on the second jurassic park as an animator and then uh, the next project was phantom menace and i and i kind of got bumped up to a lead animator during the over the course of that project and then i got my first chance to be an animation supervisor on steven spielberg's ai um right after phantom menace wrap so i did that and i came off of that film and then um, helped, went back into the prequels and worked on episode two with Rob as a kind of under-soup because Rob Coleman was the overall animation director on the prequels, but he needed, those films were so big, he kind of wanted some other anim-soups on it. So uh, Chris Armstrong and I came on and did that. So I did that, and then uh, finished that. And and Dennis was prep. Dennis Murin, who's kind of our uber visual effects soup, and. Uh, Famously has, I think, more Oscars than any living person. I think. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I saw that remember.
0: recently. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so he was, and he he had been a bit of a mentor to me. I'd met, met him years before I came to ILM, and he encouraged me to stay in touch, and I would send letters back and forth or have phone calls periodically. And he was somebody who re encouraged me over the years, and and was, I think, had a lot to do with me getting my my first bump to being a, an animation super because AI was, was his project. And so I was super grateful to him for that. And so he was getting ready to do his next film, which was Ang Lee's The Hulk. And he's like, you know, I want, I want you to do this. And I was like, great. And it seemed like the project to be on because Ang Lee was just coming off of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The Hulk was gonna be this incredibly difficult challenge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he told me, he said, Ang wants the anim soup to be kind of by his side all through pre-production shooting uh and then into post-production and i which is obviously an awesome thing but right then my wife was pregnant with our son and he was about to be born and i said i can't do it i can't pick up and leave home right now i've got because that's what it would have meant i've been been, spent a bunch of time in la and a bunch of time wherever it was shooting and some of the shooting was in san francisco but not all of it um and i said i just i don't I can't do that and i thought wow i'm shooting myself in the foot here this is again this is you know a colossal mistake but i i thought you know what i'm not gonna i can't leave home right now it's not it's not what you do and um he understood you know and uh and somebody else was tagged to be the anim soup, but i felt really low about it um and so then uh jeff Mann, who was uh, managing the visual effects and animation supervisors at the time in ILM. Uh, gave me a call said, hey, you know, I got a project for you. You want to come by and talk about it? And he slides the script to Pirates of the Caribbean across his desk. And I thought, oh, man, this is this is what happens. This is my punishment. Because you have to think <laughs> back, I think Disney had made one film based on the theme park attractions. It was a Country Bears movie. <laughs> you know, and, this, and I love Disneyland. I grew up part of my... A life before we lived in colorado was in southern california we used to go to disneyland regularly and i as it has a big place still does in my heart and pirates of the caribbean ride but i didn't you know there hadn't been a good pirate film for decades um cutthroat i don't think was the last one that anyone had tried or maybe the roman polanski pirate film whichever of those was more, more recent and they just didn't you know there was no success in that genre it seemed like a dead genre so again i thought well uh, okay this is my punishment. But he said, no, no, no. He said, read the script. Um, And he said, and John Knowles, the the visual effects supervisor, and John and I hadn't worked together directly too much, even though we were both, he, you know, he was the overall visual effects on the the uh, prequels, but he and I hadn't connected that much other than just chatting occasionally. And we seemed to like each other and have similar interests and backgrounds and all that. So that was I thought, oh, well, that's cool. John and I, I'd love to work with John. And I talked to John and John said, oh, it's it's gonna be really cool. You gotta meet the director, he's a great guy. We're gonna go down in a couple of days and you can meet Gore and, you know, read the script on. And, and, you know, flash forward, it's three films worth of just really fun, amazing work that I'm still super proud of, you know, Davy Jones and everything else. And, you know, we got an Oscar out of it. And, but it, the, so the point of this very long-winded story you know, that old thing about when, you know, when one door closes, another one opens. I know it sounds trite and obviously it's not going to happen in every case, but I have to say I've had more than one experience like that, where I just thought, this is it. My career is over. I mean, look at Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park came out and I thought, well, that's it. CGI has just killed my career. I have no idea how to move forward now. And then flash forward a few years, I'm at Pixar and CGI is the thing that's launching me to the next helping to launch me the next one. So just to say, try not to get too down when you have setbacks like that because you just <laughs> don't know what's around the next bend, you know, have some faith. If you were going
1: to take somebody on now, what what are you looking for? You know, given your background, um, yeah. what what's the sort of the key ingredient that you're looking for in young animators?
0: The, the demo reel is key still. It's still the main thing. We just want to see good work on a reel. And, and i ILM at least the two things we've traditionally looked for is hopefully a balance of acting and action, which kind of covers a lot of different things. So acting, obviously, we want to see characters emoting and, and acting and performing. Um, a, a, a thing that a lot of people do on reels, and it's still a good thing to do, even though a lot of people do it, is to find some dialogue from maybe some movie you love and animate a character to that dialogue. And it could be, you could play against type. It could be in the original film that it came from, it could be Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you're animating a very tiny character, or it could be a big, burly character, whatever, it doesn't matter. And the idea isn't to copy what the actor did in the original film, it's to just take that dialogue, listen to it and kind of make something new out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's a great way to, to, you know, you don't have to go and find an actor and write a scene and do all this stuff. You know, you kind of get a leg up on it and you get right to animating. Um, so that's, we like to see acting. And then action, that's demonstrating amongst other things, good physics, you know, characters leaping around, fighting, tumbling. Um, oh, and animals, you know, it's great to have a few, at least a few pieces of good quadruped, you know, a tiger or something. And nowadays, um, there's a lot of, Free rigs out there on the Internet, you know, uh, acting character rigs, creature rigs and things like that, which is great. Again, the the, the access to materials and tools and things has never been greater than it is now. But um, so the real is is first and foremost. Um, uh, A degree from an art school is great. And we look at that and it's nice, but people shouldn't feel like, oh, I don't if I don't have that, I can't apply to a big studio. Not at all. The real is the thing. It really is the thing. Beyond that, in terms of personality and all that, you know, we like people who are creatively open. Um, if you are someone who is so precious about your ideas that when the director of the film or your animation supervisor says, "That's nice, but it's not serving this moment in the film. Or we need something different," or even, you know, heaven forbid that the director it's terrific what you did, but the director wants something that's less good because they just have something specific in their mind. You have to be prepared and open for that. You're part of a team. It's not a, you know, it's it's not a world where the, the individual artist on a, on a big feature um, is king. It's uh, it's sort of, we're all kind of working together and that's not suitable for everyone. Um, and that's tough. We all struggle. I think everybody struggles with that. That's it's, oh, yeah. By the way, it's not something that's like, oh, you learn your lesson and then you're fine. It's like (laughs) every project, there'll be something where you are so in love with an idea you've created and it's really hard to let go of it. Everybody struggles with that. It's natural. I've known people who are amazing animators, but they were happiest when they were making their own short films.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Some people can do both. They can do their own stuff on the side and still be happy working on other people's projects. I always liked being... I liked the idea of of just creating the creatures for someone's live action film. I, I've never had super ambitions to be the movie director myself. I kind of, I like the idea of coming on board, getting to know a director, figuring out what they need and helping them achieve it, and then doing, you know, our work uh, to to make it happen. That suits me, so that's that's been a good fit for me. But anyways, so we look for those things in animators, and, and a lot of, um, you know, people starting out don't necessarily know those things about themselves yet they just they might discover those things in their first few years in the industry i would say though that you know give it a little time try to soak up the skill sets of the people around you listen more than you talk Um, but i would say don't rush to a conclusion because the first project you're on actually ends up being sort of difficult and unpleasant because of personalities or the circumstances of the project or the film itself isn't very good or whatever. Try not to let those things, I mean, the stuff I started out doing at that first little studio I worked at was terrible looking. It was, it was local advertising. It was in my brain, I was thinking about the Stargate sequence from 2001. What I was actually working on was some logo for a local car dealership, you know? And so you, <laughs> you kind of have to just get over that, be humble, you know, and, and, and move ahead. But don't sell yourself short either, you know, yeah. be persistent. Be a little noisy about what you want to do without totally annoying everyone, but let them know. if They're not going to pick it up through telekinesis. You know, you've got to say, you know, I have missions to do this, or I really like animals. I'd love to do one of those animal shots. Or on Toy Story, I they I saw the storyboards for the mutant toys under Sid's bed, and I said, Oh man, I, I want to do that. And so they gave me some of the first not the first time you see them in the film, but the first shots that were ready to be animated. Um, so I got to figure out the walk for the spider baby and some of the other uh, weird little broken toys. And, and, that, and only because I asked for it. If I hadn't, they would have just you know cast those shots to somebody who seemed like a likely person for them. But because I put, stuck my hand up and said, I want to do that. And I always tell animators on my cruise now, hey, look at the story reels, look at look at the animatics, look at the previs, and if there's something in there that you're really jazzed about, tell me, and I'll try yeah. to make it happen. I can't do it in every case, but if I can, I'll make sure you get those shots, because I want people to be excited about what they're working yeah. on.
1: Well, that's it for this episode, I'm afraid. In part two, Hal talks about plundering the original Star Wars trilogy for creative direction of shooting spaceships in The Mandalorian. He talks about using actual miniatures for Mando's ship, The Razor Quest, and even getting acting notes from George Lucas himself. And there'll be more sensible stuff like what is the role of the animation supervisor? Again, I hope it was worth your time. Remember and please share the life out of it. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn and most importantly, the website playfulcommunications.co.uk home to Made on a Mobile. Where you can join the mobile revolution and learn to shoot and edit and share. A smartphone or a tablet is all you need. So look out for another pod very soon. But for now, comment, comment like, like, subscribe, like,
2: subscribe, comment, like, subscribe. Comment, like, subscribe.